So please turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 4 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 2 through 6 today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his help as we look at his word. Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that we are wholly incompetent and unable even to understand your word, to read it and gain any knowledge from it in and of ourselves. Were it up to us, we would see these as hateful words. But because of you, because of the change that you have made in us, We now see these as words of life, but we still need help. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come here among us, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear from your word, to see our Lord Jesus, and to know how we ought to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as as I read through and studied this passage, one of the themes that will come out, and I think it will be very plain, is this idea of beauty, and then on the background of the the ideas that we've been looking at in chapters 2 and 3 in particular of this idea of judgment, and you kind of have this beautiful, dangerous thing going on. Uh, It's one of the best things about teaching biology is I get to talk about nature quite a bit, and I, you know, I like nature and I love living things, and I think it's pretty, pretty interesting to talk about some of the different plant, plants and animals on the earth. And there are a lot of plants and animals that would fall into this category of beautiful and dangerous. Uh, I can just mention a couple. Um, one that we have around here, or at least about an hour from here, is one of the highest concentrations of bald eagles in the entire world. They are very majestic. I don't know if you've ever been up to one close. That just is the right word. You know, if you've been up close to one, you see they're they're very proud and royal, kind of the way they hold themselves. They have this giant wingspan, and they kind of seemingly float on the air as they're flying right before they swoop down and pluck a fish out of the water, which that's not that dangerous, but... Uh, one of the problems that they have at Realfoot is people's cats go missing because eagles, you know, will eat anything that's smaller than them. They're pretty deadly. They will eat and they're cold. They don't care. They'll eat your cat in your front yard. And they're dangerous, but beautiful. Plants are another example of this. There are plants called pitcher plants and, uh, they look like these really long flowers. They're beautiful orange and reds and yellows. And, of course, insects love flowers because they love the nectar inside the flower. And so they'll stop by this plant to get a quick drink from the flower. And they quickly quickly realize that that's no flower at all. It's actually some modified leaves. And those leaves are so slippery that as the insect tries to take off, it actually slips deeper and deeper into this pit that just happens to be filled with digestive juices and the remains of former victims of the pitcher plant. Beautiful and dangerous. The idea that something can be beautiful and deadly 
isn't a new idea at all. I think it's a common literary device. It's been used throughout the ages. It's actually very common in Scripture, as we will see, particularly when it comes to the glory of the Lord. The Lord Himself, God Himself, very dangerous, as we just read over the last few weeks of His judgment of Judah. He, He left no stone unturned, as it were. His judgments are just. His punishments are severe. Just go back and read chapter 3. We will revisit his judgments from time to time as we go through this book. But we also know that God shows himself over and over again to be a glorious God. Full of splendor and majesty. More than anyone could ever take in or even imagine that, that sort of glory. In our text today, we're going to see this played out. Particularly the latter idea the glory of the Lord concerning his redemptive promises and how they are fulfilled. However, these promises seem all the more glorious set in the or set against the backdrop of what we just talked about with his judgment. And I think many times as Christians we fail to see the glory of God because we are caught up in that judgment. We are caught up in the bad and we fail to see what he is doing. I know there are many who are the opposite that that fail to see God as a judge, and and that's also a problem. Um, But I think a lot of times we had to be we had to make sure that we focus on God as our Savior rather than Him as our judge. He's both, but we, as His people, are definitely saved, and so I think it's a very important concept. As we look at this passage, I want to consider three main points: the beautiful branch the holy city, and the glorious refuge. And so with that, let's look at the text together. Isaiah chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 4, starting at verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a judgment or by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion And over her assemblies a cloud by day, and and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for the shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I think... As we look in this quickly before we get into the main thrust of the text, one of the most important interpretive understandings of this particular passage really comes from the passage that we looked at last week, particularly the judgment that was against the Hebrew women. And all of this culminating with verse 1 of chapter 4. And you may have been thinking, you know, why did... Verse 1 end up at the end of really this idea that was all of chapter 3. Well, this kind of brings that to light a little bit. 
Verse 1, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. It's this idea of this wedding between these women and whatever man would take them because of the difficulty that was in that day. Women were begging because the men of Israel had been either killed or sent into exile. They wanted to remove their reproach, remove their shame, find a man who could take away their shame from the experiencing that or from the experiences that they were having because of the consequences of their sin. A very difficult idea. So in our passage today, we have the filth, as it says there, we have the filth of the daughters of Zion being washed away. That shame and that reproach is being washed away. The picture of the city being prepared for the Lord to come in, almost as if there was a wedding. It's neat to see how Isaiah has woven this imagery really into the last Three chapters. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, the city of Jerusalem as it should have been. And then there's this judgment. And now we see the city as it will be at the coming redemption of the Lord. And so we'll start with our first point, the beautiful branch. Verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. In that day, again, we're referring to the day of the Lord, which has been mentioned a few times in the last few chapters, this this day of judgment that has been mentioned. And now we see this as a day of beauty, as a day of glory, of pride, and honor. We want those two things to be separate in our minds because we see judgment bad, beauty good. We want those two things to be completely separate, but they're not. Just like we don't like the idea of the majestic bald eagle eating someone's cat. We want those two things to be separate too. But they are both beautiful and dangerous, just like the Lord our God. We read that there will be a beautiful branch in that day. And there are two primary interpretations concerning this branch, and I think both are valid and non-contradicting. I think they support one another, actually. One is that the the branch that's talked about here represents the return of vitality and the return of fertility to the land itself. Think about what's going on and what Isaiah really prophesies as what's going on historically in the time that Isaiah is writing and what will happen in the future to the, in the, to the land that, in which he's writing to. Assyria is currently sieging everything. Babylon will follow shortly thereafter. And in that, they're basically, their idea of sieging is to wreck the land and starve the people. A common thing in those days when sieges would take place. And so with the return of Judah to her glory, there is a return to this, the land and its fertility. You could even consider this the perfect example of this idea that you've heard me mention before that I'll mention again as we go throughout this book, this concept of the already not yet. Because Judah saw fulfillment 
of this when the Persians came in and they delivered uh, the city from Babylon. And the future fulfillment of the undoing of the curse of creation. Remember back in Genesis 3, the land itself was cursed. And now what do you see here in Isaiah 4? There will be a time of blessing for the land. That's going to be undone ultimately in the coming of Christ. The land meant a great deal to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah. You know, it's, it's the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The land meant a great deal. It was part of their promised inheritance. So the rest, rest, restoration of that land brings the fullness of the promise of redemption. The second interpretation, of course, points to the branch being Christ himself, which I also see very plainly in view here. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah, which is toward the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, starting at verses at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The restoration of the land is coming from the branch. This branch is obviously pointing forward to the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, looking at verses 5 through 8. And Jeremiah is prophesying during this time of exile. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, they shall dwell in their own land. Again, what's the promise? The people are being delivered. Their land is being restored to them. Now we need to say that many have taken these things to mean that the physical people of God, the Jews, will be one day be delivered back to their physical land, Israel. If you start interpreting the Bible that way, you can get pretty crazy pretty fast. So we have to be careful. You begin to figure out when and where, and you do all this stuff, then you start making predictions, and those don't come true. Just just search Christian predictions and read 
to your heart's content. They don't come true. And it's based off these things that people have made hard and fast that aren't. And so we have to be careful. We've all seen that. The reality here is being pointed forward in in Isaiah 4 as well. This is a spiritual reality. It was very near and present for the people of Israel. Yes, they were delivered. Babylon was driven off and they they were allowed back in their land. But what is this pointing forward to ultimately? The one who will do this once and for all. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel failed time and time again. Except for one Israelite who is called the Lord, our righteousness, the righteous branch of David, Jesus Christ. He is the one Israelite who did that correctly. So in Christ, there was ushered forth a new covenant where the people of God, again, those set aside from the foundations of the earth, will not worship him on this mountain or that mountain. We're no longer going to be concerned with those things, but we will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is the reason that there is still a people called the people of God. What did the angel tell tell Mary? He will save His people from their sin. Without Him, they would have fallen under the wrath of a holy God. Chapter 3 would be the end of the book of Isaiah, and we would have not have heard of any of redemption at all. Instead, he, the righteous one, the righteous branch of David, fell under that wrath. He took the wrath, we took the reward. And the next section bears that out. This idea of the holy city. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, those who remain in the city will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded. There are several places in the Old and New Testament where you see this idea of there's a book. And in that book there are some names written down. And those names are the people who will be saved. Daniel chapter 12 is one place where you see that. The people whose names are written down. They're going to avoid the final judgment. Revelation 20 speaks of this as the book of life. And those whose names aren't written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so this is a common imagery used throughout Scripture that there is a book that God keeps. His people's names are written down in that book from the foundations of the earth. You see this bear out in lots of places in Scripture. And so here you have, in Isaiah 4, you can kind of get the imagery we've had building up in this whole book, this idea of a battle. Somebody's coming to take over Israel They did so, it was bad, and now there is a hero that has come in, retaken the people of God, retaken the city, and now that city is being restored. That helpless city with its helpless people has been delivered by a third party, Jesus Christ. And they are going through a list, sorting out who is a survivor and who didn't make it. And notice... 
the ones who made it didn't do so on their own. We don't have this picture of the city fighting back against evil. None of that. The city was judged for their own evil. If it were left up to them, they would have remained in that rough situation. Again, the book of Isaiah ends at chapter 3. We have a very short book. That's sad. But that's not what we have. We have their filth, verse 4, being removed. The bloodstains are being washed away. And notice, this is not a, an easy process. How are they cleansed? How are they washed away? A spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Those cleansing agents are judgment and burning. It doesn't sound pleasant at all. Reminds me of when I was a kid. Uh, I had a lot of rough scrapes because I was just a rough person. And I would fall and, you know, that sort of thing. You guys are all familiar with it. I would cry out for my mom to help me because that's just your instinct. Mom, help me. And I'd have, you know, a scraped knee or whatever. And I don't know why I did it now looking back because she would always bring two things. The rubbing alcohol and a really rush, rough washcloth. And what was her, uh, her idea? Well, she was going to pour alcohol in the wound and then she was going to scrub it. Because she didn't want it to get infected. My own kids know about this. They won't come tell me when they have uh, some sort of wound because they know that I want to make sure the wound is clean. Probably because I'm just... Getting back at my mother somehow with my, from my children, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. What was the idea? Get all the dirt out. Get all the impurities out. The alcohol did what the washcloth couldn't do. It would kill all those microbes that I couldn't see, but my mom knew they were there. I hated it. It hurt really bad. It was awful. But when it was done, it was better. Even better, even better than that, it wasn't going to get worse than it was. My mom knew that if it got infected, it could cause a more systemic issue. She cleaned the problem then and there. Why do people need to be cleansed using a spirit of judgment and burning? Because the city of God is a holy city. The people will be a holy people. Tell me to First Peter chapter 2. Peter chapter 2 bears this out starting at verse 9 the apostle is talking about the people of God and who they are and what they will be and I encourage you to read all of chapter 2 in that regard we'll just look at verses 9 through 12 this morning he says this concerning the people of God he says you but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against the war which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. We, as the people of God, are a holy people, not like anyone else, but a people set apart for the work of Christ by the work of Christ. We are to be holy as He is holy. We must keep ourselves holy by abstaining from the passions of the flesh, is what Peter says here. We need this spirit of judgment and burning. We need those things to cleanse us so that we will be more like Christ. And let's make sure we understand what's going on here. The city has been redeemed. The people have been set free through no work of their own. The Redeemer storms the gates of the captor. He sets his people free and they live in his freedom. Absolutely. And now he asks that they be holy. Not so that they can keep their freedom. Their holiness is not a condition of them keeping their freedom. Their holiness is because they should live holy because they are now free people. It's different. They're not doing it so they can keep their freedom. They're doing it because they should live as free people. Holy. How does this translate to the Christian life? Well, many times we live as if we are still captives rather than free sons and daughters of the Most High God. We live as if we are still in shackles rather than being washed clean and set free. How do we do that? Well, many times we live constrained to some odd rules that we've made up. And we all have those different kinds of things, not because we think those rules save us. No one is actually going to ever say that. We just think that they save everyone else. And that's how we live our lives. Either that or we still allow our sin to lord over us as if it were our master. We refuse the free gift of God's forgiveness. And we still act as if we were somehow guilty when we're not. Both come from the same place, mind you. Both of these same things. They're not competing issues. They're the same. They come from our own pride. Thinking that our way is best, that God's way, His saving us, was somehow inadequate to do the task that it did, and now we have to save ourselves, and now everyone else needs to be saved in a different way as well. The Catholic Church continues to do this by saying, it's God's grace plus these other things. We don't say that, plus works. We don't say that. We just act as if it's true. And so that's where we have to be careful. We are made holy, sanctified by the Spirit's work in our life. He is doing this for us, sometimes even in spite of ourselves. Just as the daughters of Zion were made clean after being brought so low. Sometimes it takes being brought to a very low place to understand the grace of God in your life. So I pray that the Lord would teach us more and more every day what that means that we would be receptive to those lessons. And so lastly, let's look at the idea of a glorious refuge. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge 
from the shelter, from the storm and the rain. Here you have this picture of the entire city of God that is covered by the presence of God, represented by this cloud by day and the fire by night. Hopefully this is a familiar image to you. Turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, as I'll quickly read from here this idea, because I think it's important for us to see this imagery. Numbers chapter 9, starting at verse 15. And I want you to to really feel what the people of Israel are kind of dealing here with when it comes to the presence of the Lord. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, and the tabernacle was there like their temple, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of the fire by night. And whenever the cloud was lifted over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle, many days the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord. They remained in camp, and according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord and the command of the Lord by Moses. You get the idea. When the cloud left, they left. When the presence of the Lord left the temple, they left with it. When it settled, they settled. Wherever the Lord went, they went. Wherever the cloud was leading them, they went. Remember, where was the Lord leading them in the book of Numbers? He was leading them into the promised land. The land that was promised to them. The land flowing with milk and honey. When God said to Abram, he said, go to a place that I will show you. That is the place that they were going to again because they were coming out of Egypt. This place that had been wrecked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians was going to finally be theirs. And notice that once they get there here in chapter 4 of Isaiah, there's no moving. This cloud intends to rest for all time over the entire city. This is a picture of God's plan for his people. Ultimately, a picture of Eternity, the presence of God with us in heaven. And notice also, there is no tabernacle here in chapter 4, only the assembly of the people. There's no need for a tabernacle in heaven. The Son of God came down and He tabernacled amongst us. This is the picture of heaven. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And I want us to see this. We will probably end up quoting the entire book of Revelation before we get out of Isaiah. Revelation chapter 21. 
you have this picture of this city, starting at verse 22. And again, remember the imagery from Isaiah 4. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will, by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, we see that imagery there. The, then the angel, verse, or chapter 22, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the, the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of, there will be, or there will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Lots and lots of connections here. No tabernacle. No sun and moon. But there's a fruitful land. And in the middle is the tree of life. Remember the last time we saw that tree? Back in Genesis chapter 3 when it was taken away from Adam and Eve. In glory, we will eat of that tree again. Because we'll be welcome to it. That land we brought back to us, the people of God. That the first Adam started in and failed. The second Adam has come and he will fix what he did. And he will bring his people back into that garden. These are the promises that we have in Christ. We see them very clearly here in Isaiah 4. For the people then, they had hoped to look forward to after this great judgment. For us, we look back to the Savior. And look forward to when he comes again to make it all right. And to bring his people home. How then shall we live in the meantime? Holy. How will the world see Christ? How will they know the truth? How will they know it from a people? Or will they know it from a people who speak true things? But don't live true lives. Will they know it from a people who are fake? All the time. Or will they see Christ because we are a people who seek holiness in every aspect of our lives? When we do that, brothers and sisters, people will see God and glorify Him. So in conclusion, we look forward to the day when these promises will be fulfilled. We live in this already not yet. We live in this time of beauty to see the kingdom of God coming forth. But we also live in a time of danger. For the lost, because God demands righteousness. So let us be a people who show the world that their own righteousness will be found wanting and that they need to call upon Jesus Christ, who is called the Lord, our righteousness. Let's go to him in prayer.
For Lord Jesus, as we come to you in prayer this morning, we recognize that many times we trust in our own righteousness. We would never say those words, but we do that in the way that we act, the way that we see the world, the things that we tell other people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us that through our changed lives, through our holy living, that they would see you, not us, that you would be glorified, not us, and that the world would turn to you and that they would seek salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.